0: Tonight on Talking Politics, with some of the highest real estate and rental costs in the country, it's no surprise that housing is one of the most important issues for voters in Boston and across Massachusetts. But whether there's an appropriate sense of urgency on Beacon Hill is debatable. State Rep Mike Connolly and Simone Crawford, the executive director of the Massachusetts Affordable Housing Alliance, join me on some big ideas that still haven't become reality ahead. But first, new protest limits will soon take effect in Boston, after the City Council signed off on a proposal from Mayor Michelle Wu which bans targeted demonstrations outside private residences between the hours of 9 p.m. and 9 a.m. That comes after months of early morning protests outside the mayor's home in Roslindale, largely against vaccine mandates, although they've recently gotten some company by way of the North End thanks to the city's plan to charge restaurants in that neighborhood $7,500, plus additional monthly fees to take part in expanded outdoor dining. The outdoor dining season would also be shorter in the North End than in other parts of the city. Mayor Michelle Wu attributed those differences to the sheer density of restaurants in the North End, which she says was cause for a lot of resident complaints during the first two seasons of expanded outdoor dining. But some restaurateurs have called the plan discrimination and threatened to sue. In response, the mayor met with a group over the weekend and announced a compromise plan earlier this week with hardship waivers that would allow some restaurants to pay reduced fees. But the compromise didn't go over so well with some of the owners. Neither did the fact that not everyone was allowed into the mayor's press conference, which led to this exchange that WCVB reporter Peter Eliopoulos posted on Twitter. So oh, we
1: only had so much room. Why don't we
2: pick it's a bigger room? Only- this is a tyranny, what she's doing.
0: And she's doing
2: it behind her back. She has no right. Listen, this, folks, is not democracy,
0: okay? Meru Wu tweeted in response, let's be clear, we will not normalize harassment as acceptable behavior. When members of this group have taken part in the yelling outside my house, bullied city staff and fellow restaurant owners, there's no right to get inside and shout down a press conference Two. Joining me to discuss all of this are Joan Venaki, columnist and associate editor for the Boston Globe and publisher and editor of the North End Post Gazette, Pam Donaruma. Thank you both for being here. Joan, you wrote this week that there is an element of unfairness to what the mayor had suggested she was going to do vis-a-vis North End restaurants as opposed to restaurants elsewhere. Why do you see an element of unfairness? Well,
3: Adam, I don't want to be the bad guy here. But by definition, the policy is unfair. The city is charging a fee to restaurant owners in one neighborhood of Boston. And I totally understand the impact argument. There are more restaurants there. That means there are more people, more crowds, more um, rats, you know, more trash, all of that. I just think it would be more equitable to charge a lower amount, $1,000, $1,200 dollars, to every Boston restaurant that uses public space for what is essentially a private enterprise. Do that instead of putting the burden on one neighborhood.
0: Uh, Pam Donaruma, one of the arguments that we've heard Mayor Wu make is that outdoor dining has taken a real toll on the quality of life for residents in the North End. The paper that you run, I believe, has been in the neighborhood for 127 years. What's your sense of how outdoor dining has affected life for the people who call the North End home?
4: Well, the quality of life is walking down the street or driving down the street, taking your packages to bring them in the house, putting your car, you know, in a spot that's not there anymore. Uh, if you're driving, going around a corner, if you're walking across some street, uh, the trash, the dirtiness of, of the streets, Uh, the noise, the noise is horrible. It's not just in front of the restaurants. It's going on the side streets when people are leaving the North End or coming into the North End. Um, It's a bad quality of life. If there's an emergency, if people need an ambulance, they can't get down the street because there's traffic. There's rows and rows of traffic all the time. Um, So You know, the North End is small. It's not Newbury Street, it's small.
0: So I know that that people in the North End who live there have to live with a huge restaurant presence, even when outdoor dining isn't going on. You've just described a bunch of problems. I wanna make sure that I understand this clearly. Are you saying that in fact, the problems are significantly greater for residents when outdoor dining occurs as it has the past couple years?
4: Oh yes. They're, they're greater because the 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 traffic can't move because they're taking up the streets. I don't think a lot of people realize that you're dining on the street. You're not dining on a sidewalk because when they're on Newbury Street or any of those other big streets, those have triple sidewalks. We only have single or double sidewalks. And... Um, They've taken up part of the sidewalk to put the, the restaurants have taken up part of the sidewalks to put their you know plates and dishes and all that stuff there. But um, so it's, it's made everything smaller, you know, little. I, I walked on Salem Street one day last year and I actually got afraid because a car was coming and I had no place to go. I was just crossing the street. I couldn't go forward, I couldn't go back, but I couldn't go to the side because the barriers were there okay so it is difficult i don't live here but i sympathize with the people who do live here because the people on the outside don't understand what's really going on at 10 o'clock at night at nine o'clock at night
0: joan Vanaki, as we mentioned in the introduction the mayor's made some changes to the plan that she had initially rolled out for the north end now there's going to be a sliding scale The $7,500 fee might not be required of everyone. They might pay $5,000 or $2,500 depending on where they're located, uh, how big their footprint is, whether they have a liquor license, which obviously is very lucrative. Does that compromise that she announced late uh, this week, does it change your sense of how unfair uh, her plans for North End restaurants are?
3: Not really. Um, And again, I mean, I don't live there and I have eaten outside, so I guess you can consider me part of the problem. Um, I think the press conference did do something positive. Um, She showed up, she had two lawmakers who support what she's proposing. She had some restaurant owners with her who say that they support it as well. And that showed kind of consensus that um, a mayor needs to build. And I wish she'd launched the whole thing with that kind of rollout. I think her rollout was really bad and that and that didn't help her. But the element of unfairness is still there. And quite honestly, she hasn't really explained the numbers and all and at all and what the money will be actually used for. And I don't actually see how the fee changes anything that was just described, unless it just totally discourages people from having the outdoor patios, and there are fewer of them. Um the crowds. Everything that was you know just described will still be there, so it it just doesn't make sense and i I you know I still think it's unfair.
0: It was interesting by the way, when you talk about her rollout and whether it was or wasn't executed effectively, she made a comment in the press conference, and I don't recall a similar comment from her springing to mind a comment about how she's still learning on the job and learning how to consult with people before announcing policies. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist, and that was a striking moment, I thought. Pam Donnarumma, what is your take on the wisdom of the mayor's attempt at compromise?
4: Well, like you said, she's new. I don't think she really understood what is going on in the complex of 90 restaurants trying to make a decision. Uh, to get them all in the same row when they're all different sizes, some are making more money than the others. And the thing is, we, the people of the North End, really believed that this was a temporary thing. It was not going to be a permanent. It was because of COVID, which helped the businesses, you know, produce some income during COVID right. time. So the first year was a total disaster. The second year was a disaster. <laughs> and now we're into the third year, which it seems like they're trying to make it a permanent. And the people down here are very upset about that. So I think she didn't really understand that it's it can't be a permanent thing down here. It, it's not built for a permanent. Yeah. It's it's not livable. For let's the people.
0: let's turn for a moment to the protests outside the mayor's home, which again have been driven by anti-vax protesters or anti-vax mandate protesters, but have apparently been joined by people who don't like the mayor's outdoor dining policy in the North End. Joan Vanaki, the city council just approved the mayor's proposal to limit protests to the hours of 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Do you think that's a good move by the city?
3: Well, here I am being the bad guy again, but I just don't like it. I mean, I, I totally, again, I understand it. I don't have protesters outside my house. You know, the worst I have to deal with are, you know, people saying mean things on Twitter. Um, but I just don't think politicians, you know, should live in a bubble. And, you know, the more they try to do it, um, the more people try to break it down. There are laws right now that could be enforced if people are, you know, exceeding noise levels or, or, you know, there are certain laws that Governor Baker has enforced. You've written about that, yeah. you know, all the protesters that have gone, you know, past his house. And in some cases arrests have been made when people obviously violate laws. Mayor Wu could do that now. I just wonder also, would the city council endorse such an ordinance and would anybody think it's a good idea if the protesters weren't anti-vax, what if they were Black Lives Matter? What if they were climate activists? Would they be so um, you know, willing to say, uh, to limit their, the time that they could be there?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Pam Donaruma. when we talked earlier this week, you mentioned that there have been times in the past where members of the North End community, whether it's residents or businesses, have protested decisions that were being made about the neighborhood. And they've done it in a different way than the protests are playing out right now with Mayor Wu. Can you give me just one or two examples of past protests related to the North End?
4: Well, when we had the nursing home situation, when they were gonna take the nursing home out of the North End, we protested, but we waited till the mayor came down to the North End. He was at the park and you know, on his flower day on the May, and we protested then. Um, we didn't go to his house. I mean, that's, you know, the privacy of your home and the safety of your home, especially if you have children or whatever, you need a place to go. And I understand when you become a politician, you know, everybody knows everything, but you still have to give them a little bit of safety.
0: One question that has been raised uh, in in this, this whole North End matter, but also in, in the course of the mayor experiencing the protests that she has at her home, is who is a constituent for Mayor Michelle Wu? Is it people who live in the city? Is it people who do business in the city? Is it people who are employed by the city and might be affected by personnel policies that she creates but don't necessarily live there? I'd love to get each of your thoughts on that. Pam, do you see... I'll reframe it for you. Do you see restaurant owners in the North End who might not live there as equally the mayor's constituents as people who call the North End home? Or do you not?
4: Well, the people who own restaurants and don't live here, they don't know what it's like for this to happen at night in the middle of the night. Um, And they're... They like the mayor, you know, and they, they have to be friendly with her. Right. So it, it's a really hard thing. The people who live here, the residents, they don't feel as though the mayor is doing their job for them, for her.
0: Joan Vinocchi, what's your, what's your take on the, who's a constituent question?
3: Well, the people who live there are the people who vote for her um, or, or won't vote for her. So I, I she has to, uh, you know, con- deal with that. There's always this balance between, um, you know, quality of life and business interests. I'm sure the people who live around Fenway Park are less than happy on game days or, or as unhappy as the North End people are about the patios. The people on the Cape would love it to have the beaches and the main streets to themselves.
0: Yeah.
3: But when you live in a place that people want to go to, um, there's some, you know, you have to have a reality check. People are going to go there. I don't mean, again, to sound insensitive, and I understand why North End residents feel put upon. But for two years, these businesses really took a hit, and it's in the city's interest to bring back the economy. And that includes, in a big way, the restaurant industry.
0: All right, we gotta leave it there. Joan Vanaki and Pam Donaruma, thank you both for talking this through. Next up, there's been a lot of talk about inflation in recent weeks with prices spiking at the grocery store and at the pump making it that much harder for families to make ends meet. But for years, another essential expense has been growing less and less affordable in this state, housing. This week, we got a new look at just how expensive things have gotten. According to a Boston Globe analysis of the latest census data, this state has the third most expensive housing market in the country. The problem is especially intense in sought after spots like Boston and Cambridge, which have seen home costs spike by 50% since 2010. And the rental market is just as bad, especially in the Boston area. After taking a hit early in the pandemic, it has more than rebounded, recently hitting an all-time high with the median monthly rent for a one bedroom in Boston. One bedroom clocking in at more than $2,700, according to a new survey from the real estate website Zumper. Nearly tying us, by the way, with San Francisco for the second highest rent in the U.S. You can see why Boston voters listed housing as their most important issue in the mayoral election last fall. But the city can't do as much to get a handle on high costs as the state can, which raises a question. What is being done to tackle high costs at the state house? and what isn't being done that could be. I am joined now by State Rep Mike Connolly and the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Affordable Housing Alliance, Simone Crawford. Thank you both for being here. Simone, let me start with you. Can you give me one example of something meaningful that has been done to help either provide more affordable housing or make it available to people uh, in recent years, and maybe one example of something big you'd like to see done that has not happened yet? Thank you
1: so much for having us. And um, I just want to start off by saying, uh, you just mentioned it, Massachusetts is the third most expensive state to buy a home. We have a supply crunch and interest rate is rising, which is making it even more difficult for low to moderate income borrowers to buy. Legislators need to treat homeownership and housing in in general as a top problem and to be more intentional in implementing solutions to fix it. Our supply is non-existent. We need to build more homes, right? We need that affordability that help to provide down payment and closing cost assistance to help those that need it. We have a one-time influx of funding from the America Rescue Plan Act. ARPA is where legislators need to start. We are all aware that the governor in his early term did not make housing a priority. But that changed later on, and he, in fact, proposed $1 billion for ARPA funding to be spent on rental housing and home ownership, both buyer and supply side solutions. But so far, round one, we saw less than 50% of that being allocated. We see that as a start, and legislators need to significantly build on that by honoring the governor's proposal or even increasing that number beyond one billion dollars
0: I just I want to reinforce something that you just said so the legislature allocated half as much money for did you say affordable housing or affordable rentals as the governor had requested
1: affordable housing both rental and home ownership combined so okay. there's a portion that, of that uh, less than half that went to rental and some went to um, public housing and and the rest went to buyer side and ownership production. And as you
0: note, uh, that's a one-time influx of funds rather than something built in that's going to be able to uh, be provided again and again and again. Uh, Mike Connolly, that's Simone's take as an advocate from outside the statehouse. Can you give me, as someone who's in the building working on these issues regularly, uh, an example of something good that's happened in the last few years and maybe one or two examples of things that you really think would help a lot but have not yet been acted on?
2: Sure. You know, we've passed the two uh, top priorities in terms of housing production. Uh, We passed the governor's housing choice bill into law recently. Uh, We also passed uh, legislation that would require multifamily zoning near transit, which is so important. You know, I represent Cambridge and Somerville. We've added to our housing stock significantly over the past 10 years, but all around the Commonwealth, there are scores of communities that are on the commuter rail that in any given year, they may not permit any multifamily housing. So a lot has happened on that front, um, certainly to the point regarding the ARPA funds. Uh, I think by my count, we We put about $600 into that. Um, That is only part of the ARPA money. There's still a second round. So uh, to the point made, I think there is the potential to go even higher toward what the governor proposed. Uh, And then finally, we have to think comprehensively. You know, it's my view that the market can play a role, but it can't solve the problem. And we don't expect the free market to provide healthcare to everyone. We don't expect the free market to provide education to everyone. We recognize the government will play a central role in providing those essentials to people. We have to do the very same thing with housing. We need the government to play a central role. That means protecting tenants from displacement. And that means raising the revenue necessary to ensure that as we build more housing, that housing is affordable and accessible to everyone.
0: Uh, am I correct that there is in fact legislation that's been filed at the State House that would do some of the things that you're talking about? I mean, we, we've talked on this show, I believe, about Mayor Michelle Wu's tra- real estate transfer proposal in Boston, which needs State House approval, uh, rent stabilization. Mike, I think of you as sort of a Sherpa on these issues at the State <laughs> House. There are a lot of bills out there that could do the things that you're talking about, correct?
2: That is correct, and I, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, you know, last session at the start of the 2019 2020 session, I actually introduced a housing for all legislative agenda that included not only that requirement for multifamily housing near transit, but lifting the statewide ban on rent stabilization, um, supporting things like local options for real estate transfer fees. I'll also note last session, we passed legislation such as a tenant's opportunity to purchase. We also passed eviction ceiling. Those were components that we added to the governor's housing bill. Unfortunately, at the end of the session, the governor vetoed those pro-tenant components. So I think there's a lot more work we need to do. Um, I recently, we had the Green Line extension groundbreaking, or excuse me, ribbon-cutting, which was such a celebration in our community. But along with that, uh, the fears over displacement are now greater than ever.
0: And I know that the communities you represent have already been becoming radically more expensive. Simone Crawford, I wanna go back to a point that you made right at the outset. You talked about how The legislature needs to make this a top priority and needs to be more intentional when it comes to these issues one reason i wanted to have this conversation this week is i watched a joint interview with house speaker ron mariano and senate president karen spilka earlier this week and it's not that they didn't refer to housing in the course of their conversation but the sense that i got watching it and the sense that i've gotten over the years watching the legislature, even before Speaker Mariano was in office, is that housing is considered on Beacon Hill, but maybe not with the urgency that you and other advocates and probably a lot of ordinary people would like. Is that your sense as well? That it's it's out there, but not to the extent that it should be?
1: Yes, uh, short answer. But the, the issue is for us legislators, that, has, that are from district that have majority homeowners need to start to think about the next generation to come. I live in Mattapan and my neighboring town is Milton. Milton has approximately 90% homeowners. So it's hard to make their legislators recognize and understand the need for more affordable homeownership or housing rental opportunities. They need to know that the children of these homeowners will be in the same situation or even greater one if we do not act now. We, again, not to sound like a broken record, I do agree with um, Representative Connolly. With ARPA and the additional legislation that should be passed, such as the Transfer Tax or the EROs Act, or along with mitigating mitigations like rental stabilization, will expand the pie and make housing more
0: affordable and accessible for all. This
1: is an everyone problem.
0: I want to make... You
1: know, make, every has yeah. that problem.
0: Well, you're right. That The point about if people are reluctant to bring in more rental units, more affordable units, you know, my own kids will find it very, very difficult to find housing if they stick around Massachusetts, as my wife and I did. Uh, you know, it took us till we were middle-aged to be able to buy. Um, and I should underscore, Simone, tell me if I'm getting this right, the reason that a lot of communities balk at, at adding affordable housing, multifamily housing, as Rep Connolly mentioned earlier, is because it creates a drain on their tax base, right? It creates a drain on infrastructure. They have to pay for more costs in schools, things like that. Is that a fair, broad-brush characterization?
1: Um, there are uh, there are a lot of things in place that can help to mitigate or to expand that pie where it does not, where I don't think that is a 100% fair thing to say. Um, it, it could be one of the reasons, but I don't think that that's the only reason. We have, um, the Community Preservation Act, which gives the cities and towns that enact that that um, tool the ability to really use some of that funding to, to, to do home ownership and rental um, stabilization within their communities. So partially, yes, but there are ways to mitigate that.
0: So let me ask you, that raises another question. If my attempt at a crude synopsis didn't quite hit the mark. What do you think it is that makes, whether it's Milton or other communities, I live in Swampscott where a development, a multifamily development near the commuter rails getting all sorts of local pushback. What is it that makes leaders in various communities say, ooh, I don't know, that that sounds like a lot. I'm not sure we're ready for that.
1: We live in a very segregated state. I am a black woman and I am a leader of, of an organization that deals with black issues. And I have I have to be honest here. Um, we live in a segregated state and people want to live in a community where they think that it should remain the same because that's why they choose a community. But that only exacerbates the housing problems that we have today. And, you know, my suggestion is for us to make sure that people have an ability to buy a home in the cities or town that they choose to live in, not being forced to live in a certain segregated area because that's where they can find someplace to buy.
0: Mike, let me ask you a comparable question uh, to what I just ran by Simone, and I think you'll probably get the last word here. When you try to make the case for the ideas that you've proposed, the bills that you filed that you think would, would help on this front, what do you hear from your colleagues what, what do they say? And I'm not asking you to betray confidences unless you really want to. Why do they tell you they're maybe not able to support the ideas that you've put out there and others?
2: You know, I think we're at a moment where um, the language we use has, has changed and that's been a positive thing. You know, we now recognize housing equals health. Mass General Brigham came out and endorsed our real estate transfer fee legislation, for example, Mm -hmm. recognizing that connection with health. And so that is step one, is changing people's perceptions, changing people's possibilities. And then step two is really that work we're engaged in right now, drilling into the details and wanting to build consensus. And I just wanna throw in a word, you know, that we always need to um, keep in mind, and that is also homelessness. You know, people experiencing homelessness, family homelessness, has more or less doubled over the past decade, even pre-COVID. And you think about the economic growth of the past decade, and the fact that that's been the product is rampant homelessness. I'm it, glad. It was, I'm know, glad you it,
0: managed to to mention that because, and we have to wrap up here, unfortunately. But that's a in a state with the sort of resources that we have here. That's an unconscionable number. Mike Connolly and Simone Crawford, thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you, thanks, for you. It. That's it for tonight, but do come back next week. And as always, tell us what you think. The email's talkingpolitics at wgbh.org. The website is gbhnews.org slash talkingpolitics. Or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam for now. Thanks for watching and good night.